Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely Skylight listeners. Welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series where we bring you conversations with authors all over the world. Um, We are out here just trying to replace our in-person event schedule with uh, a variety of delicious digital content for you. We want to make sure you you get all the information about the best new books coming out. Um, And today is no exception. We have... uh, Two, two people on the podcast today, one of whom has a new book out called Empire of Resentment, Populism's Toxic Embrace of Nationalism. I'm going to introduce our guests in just a moment, but first I want to say a few words about Skylight. Um, just if you are here in LA, we encourage you to come in and shop in person with a mask every day from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. We want to make sure you're getting out here early to get your holiday shopping done because, um, as I'm sure you're aware, everything in the world is haywire right now, including books. Um, so if you can get your uh, your gifts purchased early, that will make us happy. It will make you happy. It will make the publishers happy. It will make the authors happy. Um, so we recommend that you do that. Um, we're also... Uh, available for online shopping at our website, skylightbooks.com, and we do curbside pickup if you're here in LA also every day from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. I didn't introduce myself, but I hope that you know my my voice by now because I introduce every episode. (laughs) My name is Maddie Gobo. I'm the events manager here at Skylight Books. Today on the podcast, I'm so excited to welcome Lawrence Rosenthal. He's the author of Empire of Resentment, and he's going to be in conversation with Harry G. Levine. I'm going to read their bio so you get to know them a little bit. And then uh, Lawrence is going to start us off with a reading from his book. And then they're going to have a conversation. All right. So Lawrence Rosenthal is chair and lead researcher of the Berkeley Center for Right-Wing Studies and the author of Empire of Resentment, Populism's Toxic Embrace of Nationalism, which is out from the New Press. Harry G. Levine is professor of sociology at Queens College and the Graduate Center, City University of New York. Lawrence and Harry, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) All right. So, Lawrence, you want to read from the book and give our listeners a little taste? Okay. I'm going to read a a section from the beginning of the last chapter. It's a bit of 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 a different voice than the rest of the book. The 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 book in general attempts to make the way right-wing populists and others think comprehensible to people who don't live within that universe. The beginning of chapter six is 
something which addresses the, the, the state of mind and the state of being of blue America, of liberal America, in the wake of the Trump election in 2016. The chapter is called Grayed Out Illiberalism, The Road Taken. For blue America, liberal, democratic America, election night and the Trump transition evoked dread. Blue America had lived with a generation and a half of conservative ascendancy, but this was different. To the liberal eye, the course of the past three and a half decades of the Republican populist right resembled the successive generations of William Faulkner's Yachnadatofa County, offering up politicians who acted more and more inbred over time. Their thinking seemed stunted, frequently only making sense within their own circles. Their words and actions could not only be incomprehensible to outsiders, but they often seemed unprecedented and outrageous, beyond the bounds of known political practice and etiquette. Still, Trump was different. He was disconcerting at a level that had not yet been touched by earlier populist right proximity to power. He was not so much an extension as a leap. He was not the next Yoknata Pofa County generation. He was from a county apart. That earlier succession went from Reagan through Gingrich, who impeached a president over a sex scandal, DeLay, who attempted to create a permanent Republican majority in the House of Representatives, and Bush Cheney, who declared the Geneva Conventions outdated when it came to pursuing their wars. From the ashes of the manifest failures of Bush Cheney rose the Tea Party movement, the 2010 generation of Republican populist radicalism that spoke of defaulting on the national debt and could not let go of fantasies about Barack Obama, which ranged from alleging his foreign birth to alleging his mother, Muslim faith to alleging his planning to round up the political opposition into concentration camps. But still, Trump was different. There was every other president-elect, and then there was this one. For blue America, no one else had made racist dog whistles so explicit and raised them to the center of his campaign, made it his brand. No one else suggested he might not accept election results. No one led his rallies, even his convention, in chanting, lock her up, about his Democratic presidential opponent. For Blue America, this was a uniquely repulsive personality in politics. No one looked and acted as weird as Trump. Orange-hued tan with whites under his eyes, hair an oddly colored parody of a comb-over, a singularly disjointed debate and rally style, rich in name-calling mockery and made-up anecdotes like stories of Arab Americans dancing in the streets on 9-11. No one flaunted expectations, like refusing to reveal his tax returns with blatantly bogus reasons. No one celebrated pussy grabbing. 
Still, it was hard in America to put your finger on exactly what Trump dread was about. The dread did not reside simply at the level of odious politics and electoral flimflam. It went deeper than that. And that was what was novel and so profoundly disconcerting about Trump. He put into question something that felt as if it was the foundation of politics below the level of platform and rah-rah. It was about what was taken for granted in American politics. What previously even the worst insults Blue America felt it had endured from conservative and populist America had not put into question. Trump dread was about what Blue Americans never had to think about before. It felt more like a deep malaise than something you could easily name. And it felt like something that once it had momentum could be irrevocable. It, was, it is what put more people than any previous demonstration in American history in the streets in Washington, across the country and around the world for the Women's Day March, the day after Trump was inaugurated. It was what put thousands of demonstrators spontaneously into American airports the following week when the Trump administration issued an executive order banning travel from Muslim majority countries. It was what led pro progressive Americans to organize into thousands of indivisible groups based on the model of the Tea Party within weeks of the new administration taking power. It was what gave rise to voices in blue America calling themselves the resistance. I will stop there. All right. Um, I want to read, reread two sentences that you just read. Ask a question about that. You write, Trump dread was about what blue Americans never had to think about before. It felt more like a deep malaise than something you could easily name. And it felt like something that once it had momentum could be irrevocable. You go on from there to talk about liberal democracy as um, one of the things that they had never thought it could, could be challenged or threatened uh, or taken away. And you talk about illiberal democracy. The Victor Orban's term um, for the state and the politics that he and others like him, um, including Trump, um, were developing. Um, but I think there's another name you say um, that uh, uh, an, a deep malaise that that you could not easily something you could not easily name um, uh, easily. And, and I think that one name you suggest for this is right-wing populism. Um, the book is about that. And so um, talk about what right-wing populism is and, uh, and what characterizes it and maybe what distinguishes it from left-wing populism. Okay. Populism is a politics which is based on emotion more than it is based on particular ideologies. And it has a, there is a particular emotion and that emotion is resentment. Resentment is anger, which is directed at people who you perceive to be above you and elite. And that 
that elite looks down on you and their politics and their behavior is offensive to you. Um, in America, right-wing po uh, uh, populism, in right-wing populism, the object of resentment are cultural elites. In America, le left-wing populism, the object of their resentment are financial elites. Um, when I say cultural elites, I mean essentially the liberal world, blue America. It, it involves in politics, the Democratic Party, liberals, and in society in general, it involves things like Hollywood, it's university professors, it's the news media. And it's not merely what these people think, it's how they act and how they behave, even how they consume what it is that they drink. They drink white wine, they don't drink Kentucky bourbon, for example. Um, so, so that's the enduring object of right-wing populist uh, resentment. And it has, it has over time taken on ideologies that allow them to act in coalition with other political forces. So that in the book, I argue that Donald Trump's success in, um, in beating 16 other Republicans for the nomination in 2016, um, that, was, that was about his capacity to have moved the right-wing populist America, which is the uh, electoral base of the Republican Party. They had been um, organized into the Tea Party throughout the, the Obama years. The Tea Party subscribed to an ideology. That ideology I call in the book uh, free market fundamentalism. It's essentially the politics of people like uh, the Kochs. Um, it is Republican orthodoxy for 30 to, to 40 years has been anti-welfare uh, state, pro-free market, um, uh, uh, pro-international uh, um, uh, organizations and, and, and alliances, things like NATO. Um, and what Trump succeeded in doing was moving the Tea Party right-wing populist base of the Republican Party, moving them from that ideology, the free market fundamentalism, to his ideology, which one can call America first uh, nationalism. Good, good. Um, we've now sort of covered two, two key terms from the title, empire of resentment, um, which is the, the uh, sort of the, the feelings of the, that 
large part of the Republican uh, electorate and constituency that is the focus of what you're talking about here in America, but it's also uh, the similar uh, people and groups in, in uh, other countries, especially in Europe. Um, and, um, and, and populism, but as well, or really right-wing populism. Um, that you develop in the book uh, carefully of specific and sometimes unfamiliar terminology or vocabulary for discussing right-wing populism and Trump. Um, right-wing populism is a term that is used uh, increasingly, um, you've been using it for years, but used increasingly by um, a variety of commentators and observers, including um, uh, Republicans or, or even former Republicans who uh, were anti-Trump, anti-Trumpers. Um, but sometimes are, 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 are unfamiliar or, um, or really you use um, as, as, as tools to open up the, the, uh, the world of, of right-wing populism. Um, you develop a kind of psychology or social psychology, a way of thinking at, looking at and thinking about one's place in America. And you, the terms you use to do that are resentment, dispossession, replacement theory, and identity politics. Not the only ones, but those uh, four are, are central to it. So could you talk a little bit about those four terms and what it is that they uh, identify and what they open up and allow us to see? Okay. We've been living as Americans with the phrase identity politics for several decades. And generally what's understood as identity politics are movements uh, more or less on the left, movements of minority groups, blacks, Latinos, um, gays, women, and so forth. And what those movements are arguing for is in effect a seat at the table. And the table means social justice in America, access to power, access to rewards economically. Um, and so identity movements in that sense are about deprivation. We want this thing that we don't have. Um, the movements I'm talking about, the right-wing populist movements, the Tea Party and then the Trump movement, have also become identity politics. But they are identity politics that operate in a different manner. They are identity politics which, to use the analogy of a seat at the table, is outraged that their accepted, taken for granted seat at the table seems to be going away. Seem, those seats seem to them to be taken by people who are not proper Americans. They are, in, in, in short, being dispossessed of their seat at the table. So that the difference between these two kinds of identity movements or identity politics is the difference between deprivation and dispossession. Dispossession 
turns out to be a far more acid form of anger and and it's a more acid emotion than deprivation um, also the identity formation in right-wing populism is comes about in a different way who how they identify we uh, in the identity movement who we are unlike in uh, in traditional let us call it populist movements movements of women minorities and, and, and gays for example um, there is a, a self-evident we it is defined by um, the particular status which is in question the way that right-wing populism operates is identifying what sociologists call the other the people who in this case are dispossessing them displacing them and identity is formed in reaction to um, who the other who you define the other to be and the way in which you express um, unhappiness displeasure um, you know, distrust, um, malice toward the other. So identity formation is different and identity politics are based on dispossession rather than on deprivation. That's not only true here, it is true across the right-wing populist movements that are abroad in Europe and North America and, and parts of Asia and Latin America. The, um, you may remember that in Charlottesville, when uh, an extreme right was um, marching at night with tiki torches at the University of, of Virginia, they had several chants. One of those chants was you will not replace us. That goes to the heart of this kind of identity politics. You will not replace us means you people who are dispossessing us from our accustomed, taken for granted seat at the table, we're not gonna let this happen. You will not replace us. It turns out that replacement theory comes from uh, is established in, in the 1970s in France um, in, in, in reaction to immigration into France back then. Um, and the, the, there have been several books. One is simply called Le Grand Remplacement, The Great Replacement. Um, and that theory, replacement theory, has been abroad among these uh, right-wing groups so, for example, the shooter in New Zealand um, who shot up Muslims in New Zealand, uh, tens and tens of them, cited replacement theory, um, just as the marchers in, in uh, Charlottesville have done. And it's an import from France. And I would say that in our era, 
the rise of this right-wing uh, populism has been networked not only within the United States, but internationally, so that um, this kind of uh, back and forth, cross-Atlantic, um, and, and uh, American notions of um, replacement theory have had an effect abroad. Perhaps the most important or the most significant of those effects is um, generated from the right, the right wing white nationalist part of the American right wing populism. So that we have seen in places like Italy, Poland, Ukraine, people on the right marching in the name explicitly of being white people something which was absolutely inconceivable before. These are countries where nationalism meant, I'm a Ukrainian, I'm a Frenchman, I'm a Frenchwoman, I'm a, I'm a Pole. Now, um, they, the, the marchers in those countries uh, can find themselves behind banners where nationalism is defined and right-wing nationalism is defined as being white. That's an import from the USA. Trump uses and develops uh, uh, and transforms um, some of that. Um, you open the book by, by evoking a scene or, or recalling a scene from the 2016 debate with Hillary Clinton, where Hillary Clinton asserts that she has prepared herself to be president with her substantial experience in government positions and roles and, and knowledge about both the world and about policy and about government. And that the implication being that Trump has not prepared himself. Um, but you suggest that Trump actually did prepare himself, but not in a way that uh, Clinton, liberal Democrats or blue America would, would uh, ordinarily um, uh, recognize as a kind of preparation. So what is it that Trump did to prepare himself um, for the run for president and to some extent for being president? Well, that what he did prepare himself for was the run to be president. He didn't particularly prepare himself to be president. He simply assumed if he became president, which he didn't believe he would, if he became president, he would be president like he had been in his business and, and TV life. He would improvise. He would figure out from day to day what seemed best for him and would act on it. So he didn't prepare to be president, but he prepared for the run for president. And what he did was he immersed himself in right-wing media. And he discovered that there was a kind of revolt inside things like, if you, if you looked at Tea Party blogs, you could see a ferment within them of, of uh, turning severely against the Republican establishment. And by the second Obama term, the, there was, a, a single issue around which 
that right-wing populist revolt against the Republican establishment was forming. And that issue was immigration. For right-wing populists, any kind of immigration reform was equivalent to what they called amnesty. You could have none of it. Donald Trump ran for president, ran for the nomination, for, for the Republican nomination against, I think, 16 other Republican candidates, all of whom were in favor of some kind of what was called comprehensive immigration reform. Trump uniquely was against any kind of immigration reform. And what he did is he had a formula, basically, and it was a formula he had developed in previous years, in the, in the Obama years, uh, with his birtherism. And the formula was to find an issue which really moved the uh, populists to become the, the strongest exponent of that position, um, and then to raise, like in a poker game, to, to say not only that, but watch this, so that he found immigration, he became the uh, strongest voice in the Republican Party against immigration, and, and against immigration reform. And then he raised it. He said, I'm going to build a wall. Nobody had, nobody had proposed that at the level of, of American politics or even right-wing or Republican politics. This was his formula. And in, so, in, in pursuing um, this extreme version of anti-immigrant, um, he was completely unrestrained at, at criminalizing the other, the, the immigrants. You know, from the get-go, he called them rapists and criminals. And, and when he's president, he puts people in the galleries in his State of the Union speech um, who's, who had suffered children who had who had been um, killed or or maimed by quote unquote illegal immigrants, so he he not only said I'm going to build a wall, he presented America as being um, subject to caravans and criminal gangs that um, were threatening uh, the normal American middle-class uh, 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 voters. And that became, it still is, a kind of, of central narrative of his current electoral campaign, his campaign for re-election. The, um, the Tea Party was one of the that um, was perhaps the, the, the most visible um, uh, presence of, of right-wing populism in the America that Trump was, was uh, 
developing his campaign about and 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 focusing his studies on to some extent. You your previous book um, was about the Tea Party, um, steep the precipitous rise of the Tea Party, um, which you wrote in real time as the Tea Party was developing. Which the Tea Party comes into existence in the spring of two thousand and nine, shortly after the inauguration of Barack Obama, and pulls together disparate elements um, and creates something new uh, that then itself transforms. And you talk about three versions of the Tea Party in, 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 um, in this book. You talk about what you call tea, the Tea Party One, Tea Party Two, and Tea Party Three. Tea Party, you, the, that book, your, your, your book on the Tea Party was published in 2012. But in the, in the second half, second term of Obama, uh, is when the, the last version of the Tea Party developed, and uh, that there's, that Trump is 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 building from and working from, and in effect that you say that his his campaign and his presidency um, ends the Tea Party and replaces it with uh, with with something else, and that something else is essentially Trumpism. Um, could you talk about a little bit about what Trump got from the Tea Party or what the Tea Party? Uh, enabled Trump to do, and what he learned from uh, also from things like his crusade, his sort of seemingly bizarre crusade um, to uh, alleging that Barack Obama was not born in the United States, and that, and that sometimes that he was even maybe a Muslim. Uh, what did Trump get from the Tea Party and from that stuff all before he actually began running for president? Well, as I suggested, what he did was he recognized that the Tea Party was turning firmly against the Republican establishment, and that was happening around the question of immigration. What I call Tea Party 1.0, 2.0, is an interaction um, between the constituent elements of republicanism at the time. Uh, one is the Republican establishment, you know, people like Mitch McConnell. The second is the, the electoral base, the populist electoral base. And the third is um, extreme free market uh, fundamentalist conservatism, things like back then the Koch brothers. In Tea Party 1.0, they were all unified. And Tea Party 1.0 took as its um, object of, of, of political anger, Obamacare above all. And all of these elements, the populists, the the free market fundamentalists and the establishment. They were all on the same page on that one. Comes 2011, 2013, you get the so-called debt crises. Um, the country, the, 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 the Tea, Party, Tea Party representatives in Congress were threatening to default on the national debt. The country was closed for um, uh, 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 the government was closed for weeks on the basis of the, the Tea Party's refusal to lift the debt ceiling that was unprecedented. Here, 
the the different elements in the Republican uh, universe were on different sides. The Republican establishment was not in favor of shutting down the government. Um, the Tea Party was. In between, you had the the uh, free market fundamentalists who liked the idea of what the the of populists wanted, but were afraid for the business and the political effects uh, of of a shutdown. So they're kind of in between the two others. By the third Tea Party 3.0, the the um, the populists are on one side and the establishment and um, uh, the free market fundamentalists are on the other. And that's around immigration. Um, and and the, the, the Republican establishment is convinced to a person that if there isn't an opening to Latinos above all in this country, that the party is doomed as a national party. Um, the, the free market fundamentalists believe that um, stopping immigration as, we, as it has established itself in the USA would be a disaster for American business. And so you had, in effect, the, the populists within the Tea Party standing alone on the question of immigration. And this was the revolt against the establishment that Donald Trump observed by, by immersing himself in right-wing media. And it was the, the clue, the, the cue for developing his, his campaign. If you think about the end, you know, this is now four years ago, uh, but there was the Republican primary campaign. The last person standing, other than Kasich, who was who was not a, a really a, a serious threat to win the nomination, the last person standing besides Trump was uh, Ted Cruz from Texas. And what Cruz believed was that right-wing fundamentalists. Um, th that is to say, evangelical Christians would be his base. And it was a great surprise and still a surprise to a lot of people that right-wing evangelical Christians came around to Trump. But Cruz represented the earlier right-wing populism. It was the right-wing populism that was still attached to the ideology of the um, free market fundamentalists. Trump had abandoned that, and increasingly the Tea Party populists were abandoning that. And when Trump wins finally the nomination, it is because Cruz was uh, running for president on a populist base that had run its limit. And Trump was, was running on the populist base that was then burgeoning, the anti-immigrant uh, um, uh, populist base. And I say in the book that the Tea Party died the day that um, Donald Trump clinched the Republican nomination. 
what about Trump's um, crusade about Obama's birth certificate and place and so on? What what is what is that what has that got to do with um, the 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 both the right wing the right wing populism in general and uh, and his campaign and and that what he learned from doing that? Well, as I suggested, he learned the formula. He learned the formula. The formula was find the issue. Um, and in this case, it was birtherism. It was the idea that, that Barack Obama was either born in Kenya or was, you know, there were, there were any number of theories, including kind of Manchurian candidate theories that he had been, he had been uh, cultivated from, from birth to be this, this figure who would, who would take America into um, this, this, this nightmare of, of, um, of left-wing tyranny. Um, but, uh, you know, what he discovered was that he could establish himself as the, um, the, the figure most associated with a, an issue that really moved the populists. He could, he, he, and the way he could do that was to break the norms, by, by to, to, to uh, take up the issue in an extreme manner. So he simply, you know, I am, I am sending um, my investigators to Hawaii and you won't believe what they're finding out there which by now is a familiar kind of thing to hear from Trump. Of course, he never said to anybody. He simply said that. But he discovered that um, as, a, as a politician, he discovered his political formula, as I suggested earlier. And his political formula was to identify the, the, um, the populist issue the one two become its most zealous uh, exponent and three raise the stakes break the norms and raise the stakes so it was it was his training ground for what became his presidential campaign the um but one one last question here we're, we're getting close to the time um the um, what what Trump develops, you say in the book, um, is he 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 moves um, uh, right wing populism in America closer to what it's like in Europe, uh, to a European style of 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 the right wing, and that there are um, real affinities between between Trumpism and um, uh, and Trump's politics and that of of um, Victor Orban and, and, and those in, in Hungary, the, the, the leaders in Poland um, and in other places, um, uh, Italy and elsewhere. Um, could you talk a little bit about, about that and a little bit about um, sort of um, what you might imagine as um, if Biden wins, um, which seems increasingly likely, what, that 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 the that 
this right-wing populism in America is not going to go away. It is not going to disappear. It is going to continue to grow, transform, and so on. And what, what will happen with, um, with right-wing populism with Trump not in the White House? And, uh, and what are the likely, what, what is it that, that, that blue America should be watching for and, and paying attention to um, in the months and even and years following the, the election of a Biden. And one thing that you also sort of, sort of uh, the, book, your, the book makes clear is that democratic presidencies become uh, sort of rich environments and growing grounds for right-wing movements and populism. And that the Biden presidency will likely generate new kinds of resentments and new kinds of um, issues that populists will will draw upon. So, so um, questions about Europe and questions about what happens post um, post Trump presidency and in in, in a Biden America. Well, it's an interesting thing. Americans Americans associate conservatism because you know at least since Ronald Reagan, the nineteen eighties. And but even beyond that, conservatism with free market policies, with the Republican orthodoxy of that era, which was anti-welfare state um, uh, and and anti-unions and so forth. Extreme right-wing parties in Europe were not like that. They they in fact in in many places were um, uh, you know proponents of the welfare state. What they thrived on was um, the beginnings of of the anti-immigrant sentiment that would burst in the uh, refugee crisis beginning in around 2015 and raise these parties into national contenders. There's a big difference between these independent parties in parliamentary systems where there are lots of different parties and the American system where there are two parties. And so the, instead of, you know, independent parties, um, where, where this kind of, of, of populist politics got established itself, what happened in the USA was that one of the established parties um, was taken over. One of the two parties was taken over by this ideology. So in a, way, in a funny way, you had these, these parties in Europe for years floating around in the parliamentary systems, but never quite coming to power. And, and, and for years, very far from coming to power, then you had nothing of that nature in the USA, where the conservative party, the Republican Party, um, was very different, wasn't focused on those issues, and was focused on on, uh, free market uh, issues. And suddenly, uh, by by taking over one one of the major parties, this kind of politics in the USA leapfrogged where all the others were, which had never come to 
to national power. It has since happened above all in the, in the newer democracies, which were weak democracies in above all Hungary, Poland, and places of that nature. But you also got um, these parties coming to power in Italy. You could argue that uh, Boris Johnson in, in uh, the UK, you could also argue that the Brexit vote was um, the, the prequel to the, to the uh, Trump election in 2016. As far as going forward, I'm, I'm uh, hesitant because, you know, this is, this is an invitation to embarrass yourself, but, um, you know, I'm probably not entirely above that. Um, the thing that's really important to understand is if Biden wins, if Trumpism uh, loses at the polls, and, and does not manage in some way to um, uh, steal uh, the election, um, then Trumpism is not going to go away. There are lots of reasons for that, but one of them seems to, to stand out from all the others. In, in, and it's that it has established, Trumpism has established its own media and its own uh, figures in the media and its own bases for financial support. And beyond that, um, Trumpism is being developed as a coherent ideology. It's almost as though Trump got elected and figures, intellectuals, and other politicians have been backfilling. Uh, normally, when, when uh, a new kind of politics or ideology comes to power, you know, the ideology precedes the candidate who, who, who represents that winning an election. Trump is in reverse that, you know, and so you get Trump elected and then you get all these people kind of backfilling saying, okay, what the hell is this about? And that's been an ongoing thing. And in that world, a number of leaders and thought leaders, political and thought leaders are being established. And they may well be um, more cunning and sophisticated political actors than Donald Trump has been to date. That's it. Thank All you. All right. Wow. Um, Lawrence and Harry, thank you for a fascinating and uh, somewhat terrifying discussion. <laughs> I really appreciate well, you let, taking the let time. Me, let me, let me, I'm afraid of leaving it that way. <laughs> um, I, what I want to say is, is just like an addendum. Um, and it's that the institutions in America which illiberalism has to make tumble are far more robust than they are in the countries where this illiberalism has come to power, places like Russia, places like Hungary and Poland. You know, people in, in the progressive world have bemoaned 
this is not democratic, you know, American politics really aren't democratic. But ironically, the, you know, uh, progressives have discovered that things like the FBI and the security forces in America seem to be, seem to be bulwarks against Trumpism in an odd kind of way. Um, but the institutions in America are far more robust than in the places where illiberalism has made a clean sweep of things. You would not have Stephen Colbert on TV in Putin's Russia, you know, and that's the, those issues, those, those um, institutions that make that possible are still uh, an, uh, uh, um, an obstacle far more insurmountable in the USA than they are elsewhere. So, um, you know, so we can have another we can have another conversation in which you cultivate my more optimistic side. <laughs> well, it's good to get the you know the kind of full surgical analysis of everything that's uh -huh. gone wrong so far, so we can not do it again, right? <laughs> Um, but I appreciate you leaving us on a slightly hopeful note. That was that was kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So um, I want to just ask if either of you have anything else you want to mention or say before we say our goodbyes. Yeah, I want to say that, that it's a terrific book. I'm a fan of the book. Um, and uh, and uh, Larry said the, se the section he reads is, is unrepresentative, but it's not really unrepresentative of the writing which is really quite extraordinary from beginning to end. Um, and, uh, and a rich and, you know, interesting read. Every okay. sentence. Um, I would simply add, thank you. Um, thank you for the event. Thank you, Harry. Um, thank you, Maddie. And, um, and I hope the book is useful for people and um, useful for our extraordinary historical moment that we're living through. Absolutely. All right. And once more, for our listeners, the book is called Empire of Resentment, Populism's Toxic Embrace of Nationalism. You can get it at skylightbooks.com. The author is Lawrence Rosenthal, and he was in conversation with Harry Levine. Thank you both so much for being here today. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. See